Colossians chapter 4 is on page 985 of your pew Bible. I really do encourage you to get out your pew Bible today, especially we're going to do just a touch more dancing through the pages than we normally do. I want to review to some extent what we have seen in the book of Colossians as Paul is going to point us back to that at the very end of the book, chapter 4. If you look at chapter 4 there on page 985, you can see that from verse 7 to verse 18, almost the bulk of the chapter isn't really, I don't know, I don't want to say it's not interesting. It's a lot of names. It's a lot of, hey, how you doing, guys? And would you tell this one over here this and pass this message on to this person over here? So it's not the meatiest section. And we're not going to spend really much time in this service looking at it. At the late service, we'll touch on it. But what you do have then is a few closing remarks. And if you look at chapter 4, verse 1, you have the last bit of the section that closes chapter 3, which you might call a table of duties. If I say table of duties, does that make anyone remember anything? I really want a show of hands here. How many of you, see, this is interesting. You all sat through catechism someday, somewhere. But it's interesting, you know, we start off as pastors with the Ten Commandments, and it takes so long to get through those that by the time we get to the Lord's Prayer, we're in an awfully big hurry. We got to hit baptism and the Lord's Supper, so the office of the keys gets short shrift, and we often forget to even show you that in your small catechism, there is a table of duties, which is a list of Bible verses about who you are. That is, what is your identity? Are you a father? Are you a mother? Are you a child? Are you a worker? Are you a boss? Are you a pastor? Are you a congregant? There's a list of those things. And there are places in scripture where there are those lists packaged together. And Colossians chapter 3 is one of them. Again, in the late service, we'll look at a couple of the others to show how they all say the same thing. And that's doubly important to recognize because right now we live in a world that says our table of duties is dead, wrong, and maybe even evil. So we'll try to touch on that here in a moment. But before we get there, I just want to start with, again, this general remembrance of what Paul's been getting at. And to to kick that off, I want you to look at chapter 4, verse 5. It's like the last two verses of what he actually says in the book other than hello to people. Five and six. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. There's a ton in there. Just walk in wisdom is huge in and of itself. The idea of walking has come up again and again through this book. And it will come up as you read your Bible at home again and again in Paul, and then especially in Psalms and Proverbs. The idea of walking as a picture of what a life is, is a very key concept to hold on to as a Christian. It's not just about a Christian life. It's not just a Christian walk. Everybody walks. And think about it. I mean, what do you do all day? You get out of bed and you 
You walk. You, you finish in the bathroom, and then you walk somewhere else. And then you walk to the car, and I guess you do drive. But once you get out of the car, what are you going to do? You're going to walk. So everywhere you go, you're always walking. And how much attention do you pay to that? Probably not as much as you could, right? It's kind of a, it's a habit, this walking, what you do, right? And yet where you're going matters. Your whole life is built on where you're walking to and certainly how you're walking. Because if you're walking beside somebody on a road and you shove him to the side, guess what's coming next? He's shoving back, right? So, so how a human being walks is a very good picture of what life is. And now Paul is spending time trying to encourage us to believe that we walk differently than everybody else. And one of the keys is we walk with wisdom. And not just the wisdom of this age, which believes that power is the right to do whatever you want, or that if we can tell a story that's clever enough, we can change reality, but the wisdom of the cross which understands the dying, corrupted nature of this age, the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to buy you back from it and to help you walk through this age to that life of the world to come. All of that's in the word wisdom and walk there. I really do think we Lutherans want to recapture both of those words. We've given up the word walk to the Baptists. They'll use it all the time. And for that reason, I guess we don't. But it's very biblical to remember your Christian walk. And then wisdom is something that I just, I don't know why, but everyone's abandoned it, it seems. Uh, the book of Proverbs is written by the wisest guy who ever lived. It's there to give that wisdom to you and how hard it is to just open it, read it. Why wouldn't you? I don't know, but we don't. Uh, Paul says we should. Walk in wisdom. Now, especially then toward outsiders, he's talking to you as Christians to have your eyes doubly open when you're dealing with non-Christians. One of the great deceptions of the last, not just three years, but probably 60 years, is that we Christians have assumed that everyone who's not a Christian still has goodwill. They, seem, they mean well still. They, they would never lie. They would never trick you. They would never say one thing on TV and then go do another in office. We've, we've assumed this about everything. The guy selling me that thing over there, of course he has my best interest in mind, right? Huh? So walking in wisdom toward outsiders means, well, seeing that that's just not true, but also then, how do you engage those who come in? How do you treat your non-Christian friends and neighbors since you are a Christian? It is about learning how to forgive without being deceived, how to show mercy and love in a way which emulates Christ, but which does not let Christ be trampled on. It is about learning how to confess and speak the truth, no matter what, but always in love. Okay, that's enough on that there. Making the best use of the time, though, that's pretty key, too. Is the best use of the time to eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we're going to die? And the answer is no. Is the best use of the time to try to get as much experience out of life while you can? The answer is no. Is the best use of the time to give uh, ground to your flesh so your flesh can be pleased and happy and proud with where you are? The answer is no. Making the best use of the time is to recognize that all of these earthly treasures are going to burn. And that if your heart is with them, then your heart's going to burn too. 
And if you only build with straw, then certainly you can still be saved, but you will be saved as one who escapes through the fire. But it's possible to build with gold. And gold is not going to be the pursuit of bigger barns and finer things, nice clothing, gold, jewelry, all that kind of stuff. The pursuit of the true wealth is the pursuit of wisdom that sees that other people are of extreme value in God's sight. And that what he desires most is our trust that his washing of us into Christ's death and resurrection is the substance of reality forever and ever. The Proverbs say that it is a good man who leaves an inheritance for his son. And I would agree. If my father had left me a million bucks, I'd feel pretty good about it, I suppose. But you know what he did leave me? Was faith in Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate inheritance, yes? So, so walk in wisdom toward outsiders. See how we are different and hold to it protect it, cling to it. Let your speech be gracious, he says. This is going to be coming out of letting the word of God dwelling in you richly. Learning how to see that as a God of mercy, you are a person of mercy. Seasoned with salt, it says. Salt is something that maybe we've forgotten about a little bit. I still remember when um, early in our marriage, forgive me, Meredith, for sharing this, but my, my wife was convinced that salt was bad for you. And it's true, a lot of the boxed food you eat in America has like way too much sodium in it. Like there's no question about that, yeah? But the funny thing is like, this is upside down. Salt is necessary for you. You know, your body's like made of salt. For your brain to do what it does, like have a thought, salt is necessary. Yeah? It uses sodium and potassium to make everything happen. And you know that back in the day, like in the 1920s and 30s, they put the kids out playing football in the heat. You know what they would give them with the water? Salt tablets. Why? Well, because they're sweating it all out. So they're going to cramp up if they don't have the salt. So salt isn't bad. You can, you can overdose on just about anything, though. So do be careful how much sodium is in your box. Good. Okay. I'm not saying <laughs> ignore it. But the point is, for everyone before our modern age, salt was considered to be something that was necessary for life. Because not only did it make you function as a human being, it also would clean things. So if you wanted to take meat for a day's walk somewhere, what would you do? You'd salt the meat to prevent the decay. Yeah? It was a cleaning agent. It was a subsistence agent. So to let your speech always be seasoned with salt is to have a clean mouth. A mouth which sees value in what it says to other people. That's back to wisdom again right? Wisdom is the ability to, to see and speak truth so that it says you maybe know how to answer each person. And that's where I really want to dovetail from that back into the table of duties. What do you say to somebody when they say to you that anybody who's born isn't really one thing or another yet, isn't really a man or a woman, a boy or a girl yet? but they have the freedom to choose to be whatever they want to be. How do you respond with a mouth seasoned with salt, right? That's sort of the question I want us to ask a little bit as we look at this table of duties, which, frankly, when I began serving as a pastor you know, 15 years ago, these texts were some of the most difficult texts to preach because all the Christians said, I don't like it. I don't like what it says. 
And maybe that'll still be the case for you today. I don't know when we look at it. Will you say, that's not, that's not fair. I don't think it's fair that a woman and a man in a marriage aren't, aren't equal. They don't get to all have the same things. But it's based on that it's not fairness that all the other chaos is happening right now. And I hope you can see that. All these claims to a equality that means there's no differences between anything, right? That everybody is just kind of on the same playing field. If I want to be a woman, I can go swim against the women's team and it's fair. I hope you can see that that's their argument. And so we need to like really backpedal from where we've been led by the nose with regards to what a man is and what a woman is. And the place to start is this table of duties. Okay, we're going to come to that. But now a survey of the wisdom stuff in Colossians so far. So he says again, chapter four, verse five, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Flip back to chapter one, verse nine, probably just one page there for you in your Bible. And I just want to show you how he's been on this wisdom kick all the way through this book here. Chapter one, verse nine, he says, so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is the point of his book. He's writing this so that you will be filled with wisdom. That's what he's after. And again, wisdom is to be able to not only know, but to know in such a way that you also see, right? And God willing, once you know and see, that'll change what you do. But the fool, before he is anything, is he's a man who doesn't see. That's why he falls into a pit. That's why he digs his own grave, right? So the prayer is that you would be filled with all wisdom. Look at verses 27 and 28. It says to them, this means the nations, that means us, God chose to make known how great among the nations are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all, there it is, wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So wisdom is something that God is going to give to you to change how you see And as we really emphasized when we were in chapter one, that great change isn't just you being different. It's the fact that Jesus Christ crucified, raised from the dead, ascended to the highest heaven is now in you too. He's not gone. He's right here in the midst of us. More than two or three gathered in his name to receive his very flesh and blood. So he's not just spiritually present. He is physically present to go into you, to stay into you, to be with you wherever you go. God is with you. That's the mystery that was hidden for ages, now revealed. And wisdom is to know it like to walk out today and, and not forget it. Like there's nowhere you're going to be that God isn't with you, in you, as Christ for you. That'll change the way you look at everything when you believe it. Yeah. Again, then verse 28 to repeat it. Him we proclaim. This is Christ. This is his work. This is his saving action. Him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone. Okay. Chapter 2. 
verses 13. He says, and this is more of this idea of what Christ has done for you, the change that comes over you. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. This means not only that by birth, You are an enemy of God. That's what we call original sin. But that also by action and deed and thought your entire life, you have not drawn yourself closer to God, but drawn yourself further from God. That every effort by fallen man to climb up to heaven just brings up hell from below. That's what you were. But now God has made you alive together with Jesus. Does that mean you don't have original sin? No, you still have original sin. It just means your original sin doesn't matter. doesn't count. God doesn't see it. He sees Christ in you instead. And so even your worst mistakes and your greatest evils, he intends to bend them back toward an ultimate good. God uses even our worst for the best. And again, that is the wisdom of the cross. For there indeed... The worst is the best, as the crucified Son of God is the Savior of the world. God made us alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So forgiveness, again, meaning to send away. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us, you owe God nothing now. The debt is canceled along with its legal demands. The reason to be good is not because there's a bunch of reasons and I got to do them all, otherwise God won't love me. There's not list upon list and precept upon precept of all the stuff you got to remember. Instead, the reason to be good is because it's good. The reason to love is because it's love. The reason to show compassion is because it's compassion. Like th- those are the reasons. Not to get something out of it. Not to repay a debt. That's all been canceled. That's all been set aside. He nailed that to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame. Uh, triumphing over them in him. Chapter 3, verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, right? Since you're dead, since you're forgiven, since you're raised again, stop thinking about just this life. Seek the things that are above with Christ, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, then. How would you do that? You would let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So, that means, then, that the very next thing he's going to say, wives, submit to your husbands, is in fact not only the word of God, which is to dwell in you richly, but also wisdom, but also setting your mind on a heavenly thing. Well, how can me focusing on having a marriage in which I do certain things here in my house on earth be a heavenly thing? Because it's a picture of eternity. The submission that a woman gives to her husband When she does it in faith, when she does it, when she doesn't want to, when she does it, when she doesn't understand, when she does it, when he's wrong, is a picture of the willing obedience we owe Jesus. That when I don't get it, when I don't see it, when I don't want it, but he says it, I submit. 
and that is just a reflection of him. Do you remember the prayer in the garden? Father, I don't want to do this, but I will if you say so. Christ's submission to the Father's will is the ultimate good. It's not weak, but strong. It's not a weak person who is able to put down their fleshly passions in order to follow someone who God has given you to follow. Now, this does not in any way mean what the caricature means, which is that women are supposed to be doormats. We're going to get to the part where it talks to the men. You're not doormats. Yeah, well, let's read it. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, it's been pointed out to me recently by a friend that if we were to use the word respect instead of the word submit, that might help you ladies kind of deal with it because we don't like the word submit, do we now? We don't like the word subordinate. But respect, that kind of feels nicer, right? So, so and it's not, it's not wrong. In one sense, that's exactly right. A man thrives on respect. And if you disrespect him, he will not do well. A woman doesn't quite thrive on the same kind of respect. I know there's the song and all that. And then she's right in the song because the guy was being rude to her. But, but what a woman thrives on is being cherished, being desired, not just physically, but as a human. I desire you. I want you near, right? A man's not always like, draw me near. He's just kind of like, can you let me do what I want and think it's okay? I need to be a man, right? So this distinction between man and woman is very much at root here with this. And we're not going to solve the battle of the sexes here this morning. But but certainly, the text gives us the blueprint for how to walk together as two kinds of the same species. But we're two kinds. We are absolutely different from each other. So let's go back, though, and address this submit word, though. I think I've already made the case, but I want to make it doubly clear. I understand. Submit seems like it's like, oh, that's not fair. Oh, that seems bad. That means I'm, in, I'm supposed to let the person be mean to me. That's not what submit means. It means to follow. It means to honor. It means to bow the knee. What does a knight do to his king? Is that a weakness? That's not weakness at all. It's duty and honor and strength. And so again, when he says, wives, submit to your husbands, he means follow them because that's why they're there. They're there to lead you, to give you protection, to be a buttress between you and the world. So they were you in your particular nature of nurturing, cherishing, Carrying all those things you do so well, when you find that the world doesn't really treat you good, he's there to stand between you and it. Again, you you might complain about his hard head, but it's really useful when it's got to get between you and something else. That's the idea. Yeah. Now, again, then, husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Guys, I mean, honestly, this is, we're we're just terrible at this, aren't we? And Genesis chapter 3 says this. He says that the wife will wish that she had the husband's role, but he's going to tyrannize her. Uh, That the guy will tend to uh, respond to his wife like she's a guy. Because if a guy were to step up to me and say this, that, your thing, I'd say, why are you saying that? 
And we'd get over it afterwards. We'd kind of, we'd move past it. But, but her heart gets hurt because she's softer than you are. So the idea here is not that men would never be right or have the right to say what they're concerned about or to disagree with their wife. The idea is that when you disagree, you remember that you are Christ on the cross to her. Yeah? Even as you are before Christ now, so the wife is before the husband in the marriage. And just as Christ is under the father, so the wife is under the husband in marriage. So what does the father do for the son? Even if he must discipline the son, he does so as one who only wants the son's good to come of it. So that a man's authority is not for himself. This is so key. No authority is for the one who has it. All authority is given from above to below for the sake of those further below still. And there's no better example of this than a child born to two parents. That child is helpless. That child has zero authority, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Because the parents have that authority for the good of the child. If you can believe that that's the goal of authority in the design of creation, then this text makes perfect sense. And it isn't one of chauvinism or sexism or any such thing. It is about how men and women are just a little bit different. And we're built that way on purpose. And when you get it, it goes like hand in glove. Now, those who don't like that, they also have to believe that the next passage is wrong. Because they're the same idea. The table of duties is built on authority and honor. And so if you don't like wives submit to your husbands, you can't like children obey your parents either. And you know what? Have you looked at our society recently? They don't. And there's this whole theory called like like child-centered parenting. Have you ever heard of this? Don't ever say no to your child. It doesn't work, but people are bought into this hardcore. I also heard recently, I forget what it's called, something like Yes Day, like this nonsensical wannabe Hallmark Toys R Us holiday where the parents have to say yes to whatever the kids say. It's like the worst idea I've ever heard of in my life. But that's what people celebrate today. That's how insane and upside down we are, and it makes sense because we rejected man and woman. See, once you reject man and woman, you have to reject everything else. You fall into chaos. And that's why for us as the Christian church, to walk with wisdom, we must regain man and woman so that we might regain family. And in family then, indeed, children, obey your parents in everything, even when they're wrong. Why? Because it's good. It's good to learn to follow. You think your government's always going to be right? You think you're going to just go out and break the law when you feel like it? It won't go well. So again, learn to put down your flesh and to follow simply because that's what God has given you to do. And meanwhile, fathers and mothers, you can include yourself here, but notice how it speaks to fathers, the head of the house. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. It's the same problem we have with our, our wives. We get a little bit harsh sometimes. I'm right, and I see it, and you should listen. And they don't hear that. Uh, they just feel that. Right? And so, fathers, our goal then is to know your right in your head, but then seek the impartation of wisdom with words of wisdom to the child. 
You want the child to understand why you're saying no. And indeed, sometimes the reason is because I said no. They just have to learn authority is what authority is. But you want them to see that. Now, just a rod by itself does not really bring about obedience of the heart. We're about out of time here, so we're just going to zoom ahead and see if you don't like wives submit, then you can't like children submit, and neither can you like bond servants obey. That means in general, anybody who's under anybody do what they say. So again, as you look at a world in which everyone's just doing what they want, and the laws are falling apart, and various even orders of government are saying this law doesn't even count, we'll just forget about it. Well, it's all part of a package here. It's all part of a package. So bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters means. If you have someone who's over you, follow that person. Chapter 4, verse 1, masters treat your bondservants justly and fairly. If you're over somebody, be good. Do good. Seek their good. Well, you know, one of the, the worst parts about our current era is that profit matters more than people. Does that make sense? Like, like everything about American industry, the reason why they don't make it like they used to make it is because they don't care about making it like they used to make it. They care about you buying another one in two years because that gets better profits. Yeah. But this text says, don't be like that. Yeah? See the one who is under you as the one you are to benefit. If you have an employee, you exist as a master for that employee's good life. What kind of world would it be if that kind of salt was sprinkled through it a little more than it is now? Don't you think? And again, now, for us here, this begins here with families who have this structure built into who we are, with us as a great family under the headship of Christ himself, learning to bear with each other in love and then trying to walk in this wisdom with our eyes open, as we recognize we're surrounded by a world of outsiders that we can't expect to agree with us on everything. And you got to know right now, they really don't. They think we're nuts. They uh, think we're nuts. So to close this, let's just review uh, verses 16 and 17. I'll just read it out loud again. The goal of the whole book, the whole reason we're here, Christ is in you. So therefore, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In the name of Jesus, amen.